Our Father in heaven, you are wonderful, all-loving, all-powerful, altogether beautiful. And Father, we want to open up your word and we would ask for wisdom from above to help us to understand more fully the great controversy, the part we play in it, the ways in which we can be a witness of the truth and of your lovely character. So Father, we ask that you, you lead us. And we place all this in the hands, in your hands, and for the Holy Spirit to guide us. And pray all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Just leave that up here. Yeah. <laughs> so. I want to do something on, um, on be ye his witnesses, but I want to paint a beautiful picture, which comes from a different sermon, which I'm not going to give. I'm only going to give a, a portion of it. But in wanting to talk about... You know, people say, are you saved? And it's like, well, and someone will say, oh, yeah, I'm saved. But you know, what's more important is, are you a witness? Because Jesus says, I've called you to be my, my witnesses. God didn't just call us to be saved, to just barely make it into heaven. God says, you're my witnesses. This is our high calling. And a lot of people think in terms of Christianity of only being saved, only what they can receive. But in reality, to be a disciple of Christ is to be a witness of Christ. And witnessing and being a witness for Christ is a much higher concept than just being saved. Because you're going to be saved if you're a witness of truth, right? And so we just got to make sure that we are his witnesses. Because when you start thinking about what Jesus says to a whole group of people in Matthew 7, where they said, we did this in your name, we did that in your name. And he says, yeah, but I didn't know you. So people, people be doing healings, they can be doing this, they can be doing that, and not know Jesus, and not ultimately be the kind of witness he wants them to be. They are a witness of something religious. It may be a witness of just their denomination. And you can be a witness of your denomination, not be a witness of Jesus. You can be a witness of all kinds of things, and not ultimately be a witness for God. And so, and being a witness isn't like being part of a political party and giving some speech. A witness for Christ is your life, it's everything about you, is a witness of who God is, which is more than speech, it's actions, it's everything. And so that's what God's ultimately calling us to be, is to be a witness. But I, I want you to think about this beautiful, beautiful picture of what Revelation 4 and 5 is about. Because the book of Revelation follows the, the feast days, the yearly feasts of the Jewish economy of the sanctuary. There's Passover and Pentecost and trumpets and Day of Atonement and then Feast of Tabernacles. And the, the, the book begins with Jesus as the slain lamb. He's, he's he who's died and, and is alive forevermore. Passover. Revelation 4 and 5, which we'll spend a little bit of time with, is Pentecost. When Jesus is being inaugurated into heaven, when he ascends to heaven, and his, his, his inauguration is when Pentecost falls on the, on the believers. And then what follows that is trumpets, Revelation 8 and 9, right? And then after that, you've got the, t- the two beast powers of Revelation 13, all the way through Revelation 20, is all happening during the time of the day of a, a day of atonement. Right? 
since 1844, the two superpowers in the end of time and causing people to worship the beast and the mark of the beast. But here's a group of people who say, judgment has come, 1844 and on, right? And, and then chapter 20, Lucifer's on this earth in desolation. It's just like the scapegoat receiving the, the sins and being cast out into a wilderness. And then you have the Feast of Tabernacles, which was representative of us being part of a new heaven and a new earth, which is what Revelation 21 and 22 is about. So Revelation follows perfectly the festivals within the Jewish economy. Passover, Pentecost, uh, um, trumpets, and Day of Atonement, and Feast of Tabernacles. So what I want us to do is think about Pentecost and how beautiful this scene is, because this scene, I think, is going to help us to want to choose to be witnesses for Jesus. We've, we've got to find ways of motivation. We're not just a witness because God said I had to be a witness. I want us to have the highest possible reason for being a witness for Jesus. Okay? So listen to this beautiful scene. This is after Jesus has been resurrected. He spends those 40 days with his disciples. He winds up ascending into heaven. Is that right? The angels take him up. And imagine these angels waiting for their commander and their king that they've missed for 33 years. And they watched him in human flesh being mistreated. Listen to this. This is beautiful. This is um, going to come out of the book Desire of Ages, begin on 833. There is the throne, and this is describing Revelation 4 and 5 somewhat. And around it, the rainbow of promise. There are cherubim and seraphim. The commander of the angel hosts, the sons of gods, the sons of God, the representatives of the unfallen worlds are assembled. Imagine that scene in heaven. The heavenly council before which Lucifer had accused God and his son, the representative of those sinless realms over which Satan had thought to establish his dominion, all are there to welcome the Redeemer. Oh, isn't that beautiful? Jesus could be coming up in a cloud of angels, and they're all waiting for him. They are eager to celebrate his triumph and to glorify their king. But he waves them back. Not yet. He cannot now receive the coronet of glory and the royal robe. He enters into the presence of his father. He points to his wounded head, the pierced side, the marred feet. He lifts his hands bearing the print of nails. He points to the tokens of his triumph. He presents to God the wave sheaf, those raised with him as representatives of that great multitude who shall come forth from the grave at his second coming. The voice of God is heard proclaiming that justice is satisfied. The Father's arms encircle His Son. Can you imagine that scene? And the word is given, let all the angels of God worship Him. With unutterable, well, with joy unutterable, rulers and principalities and powers acknowledge the supremacy of the Prince of Life. The angel hosts prostrate themselves before him while glad shouts fill all the courts of heaven. Worthy is the Lamb 
that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And while this beautiful scene is taking place in heaven, the Holy Spirit's falling upon the believers in Jerusalem. Amazing grace. God's amazing grace, page 72. The world that Satan has claimed and has ruled over with cruel tyranny, the Son of God has by one vast achievement, the cross, encircled in his love and connected again with the throne of Jehovah. Cherubim and seraphim and of the unnumbered hosts of all the unfallen worlds sang anthems of praise to God and the Lamb when his triumph was assured, the cross. They rejoiced that the way of salvation had been opened to the fallen race and that the earth would be redeemed from the curse of sin. How much more should those rejoice who are the objects of such amazing love? Now listen to this. Education, page 126. The science, of revel- the science of redemption is the science of all science. The science that is the study of the angels and of all the intelligences of the unfallen worlds. The science that engages the attention of our Lord and Savior. The science that is into the purposes, the purpose brooded in the mind of the infinite. Kept in silence through times eternal. The science that will be the study of God's redeemed throughout endless ages. This is the highest study in which it is possible for man to engage. As no other study can, it will quicken the mind and uplift the soul. So the unfallen worlds, the cherubim and the seraphim, saw Jesus and his ministry, and they couldn't wait. They were so eager for Jesus to ascend to heaven to celebrate his, his victory over sin and over Satan. That men could now be could be redeemed from the curse of sin. And you start saying, well, they watched this, but why is this also the science for eternity for them? And what they know is that God could have allowed us to pay the penalty of our own sins, which is, which is death. God could have withdrawn His presence from this world, and it would have been destroyed. Because he's a life sustainer. If he doesn't sustain it, it's gone. But instead of watching God punish us for what we deserved, they saw God come closer. He had already walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. He would teach them the things from the things that his hands had created. He fellowshiped with them. He was already close to them. And then they sin, and the angels and all the unfallen worlds watch to see what God will do next. And he comes closer. God puts on human flesh. Think about it. We deserved to be eradicated. But the unfallen worlds and angels watch God come even closer. And God would even put on human flesh. 
More than that. They would see the creator of the universe, the sustainer, in human flesh, submit himself to a human tribunal of ungodly men who had nothing in their heart but to destroy Jesus. And the king of the universe so loves the human family that he not only comes closer and put it on human flesh, he submits to the unholy tribunal of unholy men and accepts their verdict to be crucified. And the unfallen worlds and the, all the angelic hosts, they watch this and they say, oh, how much God loves the human family. If only we could understand and grasp how much God loves us, it would be our motivation every day to want to serve Him, to want to be His witness every day because He's worthy. And all the whole universe knows God as such, and they're His witnesses. And they go to and fro from heaven to earth just to help us, and then they see us do so little to help our fellow men. Worse than that, they see the human family turn on one another, kill one another, steal from one another. The inhabitants of the unfallen worlds look with pity and reproach on man's pride and self-importance. The wealthy and the honored of the world are not the only ones who glorify self. Many who profess to revere God talk of their wisdom and their might. They act as if God is under obligation to them, as if he cannot carry on his work without their aid. Let such gaze into the starry heavens and with admiration and awe study the marvelous works of God. If there was ever a humble people, it'd have to be those who believed in the Sabbath which points to creation, which points to a creator and a sustainer, whom we have come to know, and by knowing him, we see ourselves as but receivers. The ones who ought to be witnesses of his grace and his love. You know, he could have chosen out of those trillions of unfallen worlds. All of them loved him would welcome him. He could have spent eternity just visiting them. But he looked at our world and he says, they need a savior. Isn't that something? He didn't want to go on through eternity without us. And our science is that how God could possibly love me, love you after the things I've done and want me to be there for eternity, that he would go through all of this. And that should be what motivates us to want to be witnesses for him. If he would, but creator, sustainer, we should be his witnesses. But to be redeemer on all top of that, 
If that doesn't motivate us, nothing's going to motivate us. And it should never be about us. When Jesus chose to come here, it wasn't about himself. It was about us. So when we make decisions in life and we start thinking about what to do, we need to stop thinking about us, start thinking about others. How would that change our decisions? How would that change the way we spend our money, how we spend our time? If we have the same mentality that God instilled in us at the time of creation as he tries to recreate us. So this beautiful, wonderful God, he hasn't called us just to be saved. He's called us to be a witness. And what we need to be thinking about is a witness of what? Is that a fair question? A witness of what? Well, let's begin by turning to Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43, beginning with verse 10. Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen. That's a high calling, isn't it? God's chosen you to be a witness. That you may know and believe me. Wow. And understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. Ye are a witness of what? Of the true God. And your witness is to believe in Him. Believe in Him. Trust Him. That's what we're a witness of. If our witness is all about trusting God and believing in Him, it changes our life. We can never live the same. He says, I, even I, am the Lord. And beside me there is no Savior. I have declared and I have saved and I have showed when there was no strange God among you, therefore you are my witnesses, says the Lord, that I am He, or that I am God. We are to be witnesses that God is God, and there is only one true God. And so when we look at Revelation, or not Revelation, but Matthew chapter 7, which is, you know, it's always been a, a little bit of a troubling verse. It's a very sad verse. There's, there's people who say, I did this in your name and that in your name. We're at Matthew 7, 22 and 23. And many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out demons or devils. And in thy name done many wonderful works. And then why well, profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. And as we kind of began this message, it is possible to be involved in religion and to be involved in it as much as these people are and yet fail to be a witness of what God has chosen us to be a witness of. I'm not supposed to be a witness of the Catholic Church and how powerful it is. I'm not supposed to be a witness of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and this, this, and this. I'm a, I need to be a witness of Jesus Christ. A witness of God's true character. Not just some organization. Not something made with man's hands. People spend their whole life being a 
uh, a speechwriter for Republicans or Democrats or this news agency or that news agency. But we're not witnesses of that. All that's going to perish. They don't espouse who God is. These organizations don't know God. But his followers know God. And that's all we have to worry about. When we wake up in the morning, you choose to be a witness for God. The way you look at people, the way you treat people, the way you think, how you'll spend your time today, everything. A witness that there is a God in heaven and there's none other. The world doesn't see that, by and large. There's not that many people who choose to be a witness for Christ. There's people who are willing to tell people about Christ. But again, that's almost like giving a speech. God's not asked to go out to those given speeches. He says, be a witness in everything you do. Be a witness for God. Should we tell people about Jesus? Yeah, that is part of our witness. But we've boiled it down as if giving a speech or sermon about Jesus is our witness. But no, our words alone are not our witness and what we say at a Bible study or preach in a sermon. It's way more than that. Way, way more than that. Now, we understand that one of the great things we have to be a witness of is is an accusation that Satan had made that nobody can keep what? God's law. Now, I want you to think about how he must be making that argument because the facts are Lucifer had been alive for, I don't know, trillions of years. Doing what? Keeping God's law. So to come up with an argument and say nobody can keep it when he's already kept it for trillions of years, when billions of angels have kept it for trillions of years, when unfallen worlds had kept it for trillions of years, How do you come up with this argument that nobody can keep it when everybody was keeping it? He must have deceived them somehow in this argument. But we know it's what he wars against. Let's look at Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which do what? They actually keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So how can he say nobody can keep it because he's actually warring against a group of people who are keeping it? Isn't that interesting? And even God describes his people as such in Revelation 14, 12. Here, here they are, right over here. Patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So you can't say there's nobody keeps it. I want to read you some things out of um, Patriarchs and Prophets. And I encourage you to read that first chapter. Give us an understanding if the best we can understand how this problem got started. Though it's a mystery, you can't explain it. But there was a time when Lucifer and all the angels, all of them, 100%, acknowledged the supremacy of Christ. Isn't that right? They all did. 
But again, his desire for supremacy returned and envy of Christ was once more indulged, all of which really ultimately happened because he he failed to give thanks to God for who he was. And if you don't thank God for your talents and your time and this and that, you begin to then attribute all these things to who? Yourself. And once you start thinking about self, you're now comparing yourself with other people. Okay? So our real safeguard is to always give glory and thankfulness to to God so we don't fall into this pit that Satan fell into, right? The high honors conferred upon Lucifer called forth no gratitude to his creator. Do you know the word gratitude, we went over that in Sabbath school, comes from a Greek word, Eucharist. Isn't that interesting? Of course, we don't use the word Eucharist in the Lord's Supper. But the whole idea, the idea of gratitude and sacrifice together to me is a a phenomenal thought. So, but anyway, something to think about, pray about. The high honors conferred upon Lucifer called forth no gratitude to his creator. He gloried in his brightness and aspired to be equal with God. He insinuated doubts concerning the laws that governed heavenly beings. So he's insinuating something wrong with them. Intimating that angels needed no restraint. So therefore, the law was more of a restraint. Not that people couldn't keep it. The law was a restraint. Okay? For it, for the angels needed no restraint, for their own wisdom was a sufficient guide. So if angels had always had holy thoughts, how could they ever have an unholy thought? Which means they would always think holy, so why have a law that would restrain you at all if all your thoughts have always been holy? There's a line of thinking he's trying to plant in their minds. All their thoughts were holy. It was no more, listen to this, it was no more possible for them than for God himself to err. Is that true or false? That's a false. That's false. That's a, that's a premise. That if you could get these angels to believe that their thoughts are more, they're no more likely to err in thinking than God is, therefore why would God have a law for me if he's just as likely to err as I am? You know, what he considers liberty is liberty from God. But the insanity is, is that we studied this morning, God created everything and he sustains it. So liberty from God would be what? Absolutely suicidal. The exaltation of the Son of God as equal with the Father was represented as an injustice to Lucifer. So Lucifer obviously thought he should be exalted above what he was already exalted to. If this prince of angels, listen to this, if this prince of angels could but attain to his true exalted position, great good would accrue, accrue, accrue to the entire host of heaven, for it was his object to secure freedom for all. So what did Lucifer actually think his true exalted position was? To be as God. Isn't that right? But listen to this. This is completely illogical. If this prince of angels could but attain to his true position or true exalted position, great good would accrue. But his thinking doesn't make any sense because if he were like God, he wouldn't have to be exalted to that position. He would already be God. He's wanted to be exalted to a position he's not fit for. How often does that happen in God's work? 
The work suffers because people take positions they're not fit for. They weren't called for. And the work completely suffers because God had another part in the body for them to play. Imagine if this man got to the exalted position that he won. What would happen to the universe? Absolutely fall apart. He wasn't fit to... He can't sustain the universe. While claiming for himself perfect loyalty to God, he urged that changes were necessary for the stability of the divine government. They, the angels, were discontented and unhappy because he kept sowing all this dissatisfaction and dissatisfied with God's purposes in exalting Christ. That's a really important statement. We have to be careful in our own dissatisfaction. If you're dissatisfied with something, be very careful about sharing all that with us, because what are you going to do to them? You're just going to make everything really gloomy for them, too. And if we get far enough, John the Baptist had doubts, because Jesus hadn't become them. He never, he didn't destroy the Romans yet. He hadn't released them from prison yet. But he never showed his doubts with his disciples. It's an important thought. While claiming for himself perfect loyalty to God, he urged that changes were necessary for the stability of the divine government. They, these angels, were discontented and unhappy, dissatisfied with God's purpose and exalting Christ. But angels who were loyal maintained the wisdom and justice of the divine decree. In other words, you know, Jesus had always been with, at the right hand of the Father, right? Even before the creation of angels. So there was nothing new here. Lucifer was convinced that he was in the wrong. Isn't that interesting? There came a point where he realized he was wrong. He saw that the Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works, but pride forbade him. It was too great a sacrifice for one who had been so highly honored to confess that he had been an heir. Now that's a true principle. He got to a point where he would have to admit to all these angels he deceived that he was wrong, and pride got in his way. So this teaches us, always be very careful what you say. Okay? So you don't put yourself in a position that you have to backtrack and say, I was wrong. Because pride could get in the way. And the higher the person is on the ladder in an organization, the less likely they admit that they're wrong. So if things go wrong at the very top of the organization, it's very unlikely that they'll ever say they were wrong. And so the whole work just continues to suffer for years and years and years. But one of the true, in working in the prisons, one of the truest evidences that someone's been converted is when they admit that they're wrong. And they're not blaming somebody else. And he says, you know, I'm here in prison because of my own deeds. It's not nobody else's fault but my own. And I say, you know, that's a sign of conversion. Lucifer pointed to the long-suffering of God as an evidence of his own superiority, of Lucifer's superiority. Look at that. An indication that the king of the universe would yet accede to his terms. So because God had not inflicted some sort of pain or something to Lucifer right away, he thought that the longer God went on and allowed him to do this, that eventually God would give in to this. You know, I've always wondered how he convinced a third of the angels that they could ever possibly win. Because you'd think they'd be in absolute rebellion a long time ago. But they're all kind of in this thing together, right? But he must assure them that it's in the end they'll succeed. 
God will have to give into this. Um, and we can do that too. If we are sinning and there's no immediate implication or consequence, what might we do? Paul talks about despising the very grace of God. God in his mercy doesn't necessarily punish us right away for wrongdoing, and sometimes we interpret that as that it's okay to keep doing it. If the angels would stand firm with him, he declared, they would yet gain all that they desired. He fully committed himself to the great controversy against his maker. Rejecting with disdain the entreaties of the loyal angels, he denounced them as deluded slaves. That's an interesting statement, because what would a deluded slave be? It would be a person who's enslaved to something, but he is enslaved to it because he's deluded. In other words, he doesn't have enough information. If he, if he had enough information or enough light, he wouldn't choose to be a slave to it anymore. So these angels that are loyal to keeping God's law are only doing it because of what they don't know. And if they knew what he knew, they would join in his rebellion and assert their liberty away from God's law. That's the argument. And then it gets to a point where he would never acknowledge the supremacy of Christ. He had determined to claim the honor which should have been given him. Um, he promised those who would enter into his ranks a new and better government under which all would enjoy freedom. Freedom from what? Freedom from a law. Not that nobody can keep it. He's just saying, you don't need it. You can be free from it. You are your own law. Does that sound familiar? He hoped to win all the angels to his side to become equal with God himself and to, to be obeyed by the entire hosts of heaven. The loyal angels warned all too close, all to close their ears against Lucifer's deceptive reasoning. So they knew that what he was saying, he was saying it in a deceptive way. And urged him and his followers to seek the presence of God without delay. So, when we think about this one statement, I want to read this one statement again. If the prince of angels could but attain to his true exalted position, great good would accrue to the entire host of heaven, for it was his object to secure freedom for all. The word attain means what? To attain to something. To reach a certain position, to go from here, to attain something higher, to attain a certain knowledge, to attain certain qualities or abilities. Now, his own thought of attaining to some he thought he deserved. And now go back, as we did earlier today, Genesis chapter 3, and this whole concept that if you only knew certain knowledge, you weren't a deluded slave, you were, you were now enlightened, and becoming enlightened, you would attain to a greater position. Now think about that. In his own case, in his argument with the fallen angels, and what he says to Eve here. Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat thereof, something forbidden, right? Then your eyes shall be opened. You'll have what? Special knowledge. 
and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. In other words, you won't need to be under a law because with this special knowledge, secret knowledge, you'll be able to determine what's good and evil for yourself. And therefore, if you don't have this, you're just going to be a deluded slave and have to keep the law all the time. And Lucifer, I believe, would argue that the only reason that he had kept God's law for trillions of years was because of what he didn't know. But once he got the light, he says, oh, I have to rebel. I have to improve this. I've got to let everybody know and let them assert their freedom if they could gain this special knowledge. So Eve ate this hoping for what? Some special enlightenment that would make her like what? Like God. So the whole idea of us being creatures created in God's image and serving the creator and the sustainer is now made to look like we're just deluded slaves. But you could rise higher than this. Isn't that really basically what the New Age movement's about? Isn't that what they teach in every secret society? We talked about it last night. That, that the Luciferian number one code is... The whole law is do as thou wilt. Yeah, that's the Luciferian code. That's his argument here. Not that people can't keep the law. It's just that you'll remain as a deluded slave by doing it when you could rise to a higher level by being your own law. Isn't that how most people live? So when you talk about being a witness, what are we a witness now of? That the only safe way, the only way to live for eternity, the only way to be happy and have life is to do what? Keep God's law. Recognize God's authority as lawgiver, as creator, sustainer. We are a witness that the wrong course is to do my own thing. That I will not find happiness and go in that direction. We have to be the happiest joyous, most glad people on the planet by serving God and keeping His commandments. Not this, I have to do this, I have to do that. I'm going to earn this, I'm going to earn that. We're still here because, as Ellen White says, we were a group of people trying to keep the law, and this is dry as the hills of Gilboa. The opposite has to be written written about us, that we are the most joyous, glad people because the law is written in our hearts and our minds because we have found that our joy is actually in recognizing God's authority over our life and it is our joy to submit to his authority and to keep his law that we have tried it ourselves. We've been out in the world. We've tried it the other way to do it our own way and what did it get us? When we broke God's health laws, when we broke God's moral laws, when we broke this, we broke that, what did we reap? Sin. And destruction, not just in our life, but influenced other people's lives. The the happiest days of my life are obeying God. That has to be our witness. That we're so excited about serving God that we want to tell people about it. That we don't worry about telling people about the Sabbath because there's such a joy in keeping the Sabbath. There's such a joy in knowing the Creator. And if other people could know this, this isn't just a doctrinal issue. This is about life. This is about being a witness of who God is. 
So let's turn to the book of Job, book of Job. So Satan brings this argument to God and, you know, it's like nobody can keep it because they can't keep it under certain, under certain conditions they can keep it. That's all he can say. He can say, yeah, guy, people can keep the law under certain conditions if they're deluded slaves. But once they get this special knowledge, they'll never be happy doing that. So you, you look at Genesis chapter 4. Not Genesis, Job chapter 4. Beginning with verse 12. This is a scary little scene. Listen to this. This is one of Job's friends. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Now... Now a thing was secretly brought to me, and my ear received a little thereof. In thoughts from the visions of the night, when deep sleep, Job 4, when deep sleep falleth on men, verse 13, now verse 14, fear came upon me, and trembling which made all my bones to shake. Then a spirit, not the Holy Spirit, then a spirit passed before my face, and the hairs of my flesh stood up. It, this isn't Job, this is his friend. It stood still, and I could not discern the form thereof. An image was before mine eyes. There was silence, and I heard a voice saying, Shall a mortal man be more just than God? Shall a man be more pure than his maker? Behold, he put no trust in his servants, and his angels he charged with folly. How much less in them that dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, which are crushed before the moth. Oh, this is so satanic. I'm telling you, friends, He's planning in the mind, he's trying to use this friend of Job to plan in Job's mind that God doesn't trust his servants. Which is why God didn't want Eve to partake of the tree of good and evil. God didn't want to trust her with that knowledge. He couldn't trust her. So the reason God has this law and he keeps us under guard and Lock and key is because he can't trust us with this life. That's what he's insinuating. But if you as a created being, you could obtain this life. Like the serpent who takes from the forbidden tree can now talk and attain to a higher level. And you, Eve, if you partake of it, you'll be like the gods. You'll attain to something higher. By partaking of something God has prohibited because he doesn't trust you. I mean, have you ever heard of people arguing about people who are just law-abiding Christians following Jesus about being so simple and straight-laced and as if they have superior knowledge, a greater experience by being worldly and, and all their worldly thoughts and things like that? That's the world we live in. And to the Greeks, the idea of believing in Jesus is absolute foolishness. And to the Jew, is actually blasphemous. But to the believer, it's the key of life. Of knowing what life's all about. It's about 
self-sacrifice and love and service. And But it, the reason it's fullness to the world is because the world only knows climbing over people to attain to self-assertion, right? So when you think about God's people as a witness, oh, and I guess as we finish up a little bit more with Job, but let me just say a few things before we go on with Job. Because God's going to have him consider my servant Job. And of course the argument is that, well, he only keeps your law, because he actually winds up admitting that Job keeps the law, right? Because the only reason he does is because you protect him and you prosper him. Now, we'll, we'll come back to that because we need to think about what that means to be a witness in this great controversy. Because ultimately what God's going to need is a witness of those who choose, with all the knowledge, they choose to submit to the authority of God and keep in his law, knowing they could lose everything. And they still keep it. See, here, here's the thing. You would think that the being, God, who creates everything and sustains everything, if he just simply said Satan is wrong, that would be it. We could, we could all go home. God said Lucifer's wrong. That settles it for me. But it couldn't. Satan had so masterfully couched his deception that now it has to be demonstrated. But how can it be proved that God's people are experiencing life at its fullest abundantly and can keep the commandments if God always kept a hedge around us and we only knew prosperity and we only knew protection? And now you know why things, some things happen to us and we may complain but you know why some bad things happen to us? God doesn't cause them. He permits them. For us to be what? A witness. That even though he slay me, I will trust in him. And in the end of time, he's going to have a people who will lose every earthly support. And reflect the image of Jesus perfectly by keeping those commandments. If God could have done it through simply a declaration, he would have done it. But the fact is, love for God and the beauty of his commandments has to be a demonstration. And it can't simply be demonstrated by people who have everything, every earthly want needed, needed or met, and are always protected. Which is why the story of Job becomes so important to us. But as we look at God's people in Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, is that okay? Do I have time? What time do I have? Well, that's, that's pretty dangerous to say to a speaker. So, <laughs> Revelation 12, 17, I am merciful too, you know, because of Jesus. So I won't subject you to this much longer, so... Revelation twelve seventeen. 
And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So there will be a people who will keep it while Satan is at what? War with them. Is that important witness? Well, the greatest of created beings has taken a third of the angels and they are predominantly arrayed against us. He doesn't have to use those against the world. The world's already lost if they don't know Jesus. They're mostly arrayed against us. Revelation 14, 12. So we can be thankful for the breadth we have. We have no idea the protection we have, even at this very moment. Revelation 14, 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And one of the key words here is the word patience. Now, in the book of Revelation, you have seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven, seven last plagues, seven thunders. Guess how many times the word patience is used in the Bible, in Revelation? Seven times, very good. <laughs> Patient endurance. And I want us to look at this idea of patient endurance. Um, the word patience, there's two words in Greek for patience. One is makrothumia, uh, patience in respect to persons. In other words, it relates more to loving people. And the opposite of this would be getting revenge with people. So God's people in the end... And keeping the law, having the patience of Jesus, the patience of the saints, have to be a people who have no more wrath or revenge in the heart. They have love for people. Now, the other word for patience in the Greek, which is in this case is the word hupomone, which means, which is related not to love, as much to love as to hope. So, in the patience of the saints who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, have hope in their patience. And the opposite of hupomone is cowardice and despondency. So think about what that would mean to us. That in the end of time, in the face of opposition, instead of being cowards in keeping the Ten Commandments of God, or in despondency, no, we keep the commandments, all this great hope. Because what? The reward of the faithful is eternal life and a new earth, a new heaven and a new earth. That our patience is caught up in our hope in Jesus Christ and all that he has promised. And it's like, well, does that sound like a much of a cost for keeping the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus in the face of opposition when you have all that hope? That's nothing what we'd be facing. But we've got to approach this from the right perspective. And so we look at the greatness of God. It helps us see the smallness of men. We start thinking about having patience, having hope, having love. Get rid of wrath and revenge and cowardice and despondency. Get rid of those things because those things will keep you from keeping the Ten Commandments. And so you think about those things that are hopeful and being true, being loving, being forgiving is going to enhance our ability and God honoring us and writing those laws in our hearts and our mind. So if I keep holding grudges, and I keep having thoughts and doubts and this and that, how, is it going to be easy for me to keep the commandments? That's no, going to be very, very, very hard. Hope. 
Keep looking at those promises of God. The hope, the promises of God is going to encourage you to keep those commandments. Settle your differences between people and exchange that anger for love towards people. And you'll be motivated to keep those commandments. God will honor that. He'll empower you. Overcome your fear and witnessing for Jesus. You'll keep those commandments of God. You can't separate these things. Some of these, look at some of these words for patience. Uh, Revelation 1, 9. Look what it's associated with. I, John, who am also your brother and companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the island that is called Patmos, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Patience caught up into, because he, he was unjustly put on the island of, of Patmos. For doing what? What a terrible person, preaching the word of God, right? What a terrible wretch. And so Jesus, or so John, is put on the island of Patmos, gone through this tribulation. He says, you're my brother. And we need to keep that in mind. Our brother John has already gone before us. Revelation 3.10. Revelation 3.10, the second occurrence. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. You see what patience seems to always be associated with? What? Trials and temptations and difficulties. We need patience. But if you have patience, it's because you believe in who? You believe in God. If we don't have patience and we face trials, what do we become? Impatient. Isn't that right? <laughs> That's just the law. You know, <laughs> you're not going to beat that one. Um, Revelation 2, chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, hast found them liars and I hast borne and hast patience for my namesake, uh, namesake hast labored and hast not fainted. So not fainting, moving forward, keeping going, laboring, doing things for Jesus, doing it in the name of Jesus is associated with patience. Keep moving forward, right? 13, chapter 13, verse 9 and 10. Chapter 13, verses 9 and 10. If any man have an ear, let him hear. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here's the patience and the faith of the saints. Because what are they going to face? The first and second beast, aren't they? Okay. And then Revelation 14, 12, which we've read. Revelation 14, 12. Here's the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Well, I know we're running out of time, so let me try to move ahead a little bit here. Go back to Job. Back to Job. Chapter 1, verses 6 and 8. Now there was a day when the sons of men came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? 
And Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear thee for naught? Hast thou not made a hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the works of his hands and his substance is, in, is increased in his hand. But put forth thine hand and touch all that he hath and he will curse thee to thy face. So Job was allowed to do that. But what he's insinuating is while he has to admit that Job actually is keeping the law, he has to change, he has to somehow say that his argument, yeah, but, I know he's keeping the law, but he's only doing it because you protect him. See, he can't say nobody's kept it. That would be a foolish argument. He kept it. So he's got to come up with a reason why we really can't keep it, and again, it's because we're deluded. If we only had the right information, if we could be set free, this liberty away from being under the thumb, God's thumb in his law. And so when you start thinking about what the other churches are out there preaching about, you don't have to keep the law. You think about how dangerous that is. Who, whose argument are they supporting in this? They're actually, support, they're actually supporting Satan's argument that you don't have to keep the law. You think how dangerous that is. Churches, from pulpits, people are singing hymns and then hearing sermons that you don't have to keep the law. They're falling right in with Satan's plan. Yes? Yeah, I think some of them kind of do that, though. I think the, the most of them will preach that you're just going to keep sinning until and just go out and do the best you can, live the best life you can. Is what, huh? Yeah, they say you sin because you're a sinner. Right, so, yeah. Well, don't worry, you're justified. So Job was um, influenced by the idea, not that he gave into it, but they try to influence him that, well, you must have done some terrible sin in your life or you wouldn't be experiencing this. Do you know most people really still believe that today? And it was one of the reasons the Jews rejected Jesus because how could he be the Messiah and be crucified? If he was crucified, he must have done some terrible thing. You know? And so the whole idea, the disciples say, well, this blame man, who was it his sins or was it his parents' sins that he's blamed? And God says, well, this is for the glory of God. It's not his sins or his parents, it's for the glory of God. Now, what we need to understand that story is that God didn't make that man blind. God would never choose to make a person blind, but people are blind in this world, and God can take that blindness and bring glory to himself by healing the blind man. Right? So God didn't cause a man to be blind to glorify himself. God doesn't need to do that. God doesn't need to glorify himself. God is always the healer. He's always the life giver, right? And so he can take that situation and he can glorify himself by healing the man that was blind, right? So when you think about Lazarus, well, let me read you a statement here. Great Controversy, page 47. The mysterious providence which permits the righteous to suffer persecution at the hand of the wicked has been a cause of great perplexity to many who are weak in faith. Some are even ready to cast away their confidence in God. It is even said of John the Baptist that he, quote, had despondency and doubt 
Desire of Ages 2.14. John the Baptist. Because of his erroneous concept of the Messiah. He was the forerunner, but he too thought the Messiah would come and destroy the Romans. Somehow Messiah must come and, and assert his power. Why is John still in prison? Why hasn't Jesus taken the reins and ruling the, ruling the kingdom now? And so instead of John sharing those doubts, he says to his disciples, go out and, and ask him, is it, is it you? Should we wait for another? But give me a report. Give me a report. And they come back and Jesus tells them, well, tell them what you see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The sick are healed. So is the, is the, his disciples, they keep bringing back these reports. His understanding of the mission and character and everything of God was changing. And then he could be peaceful. That Jesus' mission is different than what he thought it would be. And then he could just, just well, Messiah's going to do what he's going to do. He's, he's doing it perfectly. He could trust that. And we need to be careful. We need to ask, Lord, is there some erroneous ideas that I have in my head? Do I have some erroneous theories that might be keeping me from allowing you to do what you need to do in my life? Is that possible? That somehow I could even have an idea if something bad happens to me, is like maybe God's punishing me or maybe God doesn't love me anymore, maybe God's not involved anymore. No, we may actually be going through something to be a witness John the Baptist died in prison not because of his lack of faith or any sin in his life. God permitted it because after him would be many believers who had faced trials and tribulations. And all they had to do is remember their brother John the Baptist and it gave him courage. God will permit some to face persecution and die not just to be a witness to the unbelievers but to Believers to encourage them to themselves remain faithful unto death. Let me close this and then we'll open up for some questions. Desire of Ages, page 224, 225. And of all the gifts that heaven can bestow upon men, fellowship with Christ and his sufferings is the most weighty trust and the highest honor. Isn't that quite a statement? Not that you go out looking for problems. Let me end with this story. Jesus, my brother Lazarus, is sick and dying. Send word to Jesus and let him know about Lazarus. Do you know what's really beautiful about that story? They didn't command Jesus to come. Disciples said, thought, oh, you need to go see Lazarus. Or when he fed the 5,000, Jesus, you need to be crowned king. Then we're going to force him to be king. But you know, one of the reasons that Jesus would spend time with Lazarus and his two sisters, none of whom were married, was because he enjoyed their fellowship and they somehow understood him probably better than anybody. And they allowed him to be him. 
And when Lazarus is sick, and this is their brother, the two sisters would be left without their brother. They don't have any husbands. You know what that would be like for these women back in the first century Palestine? They didn't command that he come. Your friend Lazarus, who loves you, and you love Lazarus, he's sick. And even when he comes, if you would have been here. But it's not a rebuke. They allowed Jesus to be Jesus. Because he, they knew he loved them. And he performs the greatest miracle of his ministry when it comes to healing. The bottom line is, friends, God loves us. Let him love you the way he chooses to love you and work in your life. Don't take your own life in control. You just wake up every morning, consecrate yourself to God for that day. You're going to go to work, you're going to go whatever your schedule is, but you're going to be a witness for Jesus, a witness of his love, a witness of patience. You'll meet workers who may rub you the wrong way, patience. Love them. Be of good courage. Be a witness of Jesus. But you got to start the day with Jesus. How do we be a witness of Jesus if we don't begin the day with Jesus? Make him most and best in everything in your life because there's no one else who's going to love you more than Jesus. He gave you life. Your heart's beating because of him. And there's nobody else like him. And to wonder after the beast and to worship the beast, that's just absolute insanity. We're better than that. When you think about it, it's beneath us to worship man. It's beneath us to make an idol of men. Whether it's sports figures or this or that, it's beneath you. You're better than that. You're a son and daughter of God. Think of him. Commune with him. And he'll enrich your life. No matter what's happening in your life, you could have problems, but you'll have peace. And the only way it's going to happen is you let Jesus be Jesus. Don't try to control his ministry. Let him control you. Fair enough? Before we have a closing prayer, were there any questions, anything you wanted to bring up or before we close? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's true. Well, if it's God's law and God is love, He'd have never given us a law that wasn't for our best interest. And that law is what keeps us in harmony with him and all other created beings, which is the only hope of the universe. I mean, if Satan thought about it, the whole idea of bringing the world and rebelling against God, he, ultimately he winds up destroying himself if he was able to carry off his, his rebellion. If his rebellion worked, there's no future for anybody. Because eternity is based on God's perfect law. It's absolute insanity to have his own way 
and live forever because it could never happen. It's just, it's just crazy stuff. Yeah. Unfortunate. I know when I became a Christian at the age of 20, and I, I didn't know, I mean, I just, I mean, I actually wept for Lucifer. I, w- I was actually very sorry to hear about his story when I first heard it. I thought, wow, what an opportunity. And he threw it all away. And I just cried. I just thought, wow, this is, ter- this is a terrible story. If it only had happened differently. You know, we, you know, yeah, go ahead. You had a question. Joe asked me what to say now about Satan. Can you love Satan and people that do his work? Some people know him. If what now? I'm sorry. If you can love Satan and people that do his work, some of them know him. Some people knowingly do Satan's work. Yeah, I mean, I have hard feelings toward those people. Oh, yeah, you have hard feelings towards them. How can you manage to love them? Well, because maybe what they don't know. I mean, if, if we're to hate sin, but not the sinner. So Christ died. There are people who've come out of Luciferian circles to be part of Christ's body. So these people didn't know. I mean, I remember, I probably shared this story about the demon-possessed man I was speaking down in Portugal. And this man fought this 10 minutes before the series was going to start, a week-long series down there in Fortaleza. And and this guy said he wanted to talk to me. And so I, I go with the elder. Did I share this before? So I said, okay, I've got a minute. So we go over to this other room, and I've got the head elder because I don't know Portuguese. And so... Um, so he's translating this. This guy's sharing his life. I realize, well, the guy's just, he's just talking about a worldly life. I, I figure he must not know Jesus. So I says, well, tell the guy he needs to accept Jesus right now. <laughs> the elder looked at me and said, you want me to tell him that? Well, sure, I want you to tell him that. And so he tells him that. And all these strange voices start coming out of, it, out of him. They were demons speaking. And his body was doing all these strange contortions, which he probably couldn't have physically done by himself. And all of a sudden, this head elder and I, we're just weeping for this man, crying for him, because he's controlled by demons. But we're saying, you know, Father, he doesn't, Satan's not worthy to own anybody. And Father, this man may not be able to even say, I want to be free. But I said, Father, because the demons are speaking through him, I said, Father, but in his heart, if there's just one grain of sand that says, I want to be free, honor that. Because he may not be able to physically say it. And after we wept and prayed for this man for like 10 minutes, all of a sudden, boom, everything changed. The man is free. The man's coming to church. The man gave his heart to the Lord, and all the demons left. But you know, we never felt scared. I mean, we serve the God of the universe. The, the demons are going to flee, you know. But it was it's, it's, you've got to be concerned about the soul. Satan doesn't deserve anybody. And so we've got to get out there and give people an opportunity to hear the truth and make a decision. But people who worship Lucifer, they obviously don't know what they're doing. You know? So, I mean, we have limited knowledge as human beings to begin with. You know? So. And even if they did knowingly do it, we have freedom of choice. A person can choose differently. Having now known Lucifer and what a cruel tyrant he is, they may not want to serve him anymore. So we need to pray for these people that they'll choose to want to be free. Yeah. Is there any other questions or comments? 
We met a girl at a minister's meeting who was demon possession. She didn't want to be free. She says, Lucifer is the only one I know. Some people choose to worship Lucifer. But uh, you got to make, you know, just be careful. Don't get into any kind of spiritualism. And you start inviting all kinds of things in your life. You stay as far away as you can. Don't, don't, don't get involved in it. Okay. All righty, yes. Jesus, she says, inspired hope in people. She didn't look at people as, at the, as they are, as at what they could become. And that's a different way of looking at people. And um, so we do, we need to look at people differently to inspire them and actually believe they can make right decisions. The thing is, we don't know why a person is in drugs or this or that, or um, we don't know the, the shoes they've had to walk in. Uh, our world is waxing worse and worse, so things happening at home are worse and worse. Uh, the, the lives that many of these young people live today uh, under a lot of abuse, you'd be surprised, even in our churches, uh, the kind of abuses that take place that children go through and affects their life. Their lives can change. They can come to Christ and have a new life, but their life up to that point has been molded by those influences around them and a lot of young people are just simply in the wrong crowd. I mean, I meet them in the prison almost on a weekly basis. They were in the wrong spot, the wrong people, the wrong place, doing the wrong thing, paying dearly for it. If they could go back and do it different, they would. A lot of it is drug-related. Yeah, they probably wouldn't have done it had they not been under the influence. But they were. So God gives us these health laws and everything to protect us not just from those evils, but other unnecessary evils. Because generally, one evil leads to another evil. So abiding by God's law is a, is a protection to us. It's not a, it is a liberty. It keeps us from being enslaved to other things. So, yes. Uh, well, uh, when we talk about God's law, I remember in 2003, when I was in secondary school, when this lady, she came she was a Roman Catholic, and then she came to Seminary Adventist School. Of course, she received uh, some Bible studies, and she wanted to be baptized. And then when she made the decision, she was possessed. And I do remember one of the things which demons say. They say that uh, Seminary Adventism 
is the most hated church by Lucifer. Hated, yeah. Yes, yeah. because of the Sabbath issue. And they say that they were willingly that this lady can go to any other church, all these other Sunday churches, because according to the demon, they say, these are our prison to lock these people in chains. And why will you go to unlock them from where we have put them? Now, saying that in 2007, when we went to evangelize in one of the areas, we met with a, a witch doctor, and she was possessed when we went over there. And then they said a very tough word. They say, you guys, you came here and then you prayed, and then you blocked all our ways. That was Sunday morning we went to, we were visiting people, and then they say that you block our ways and we, were, we, we cannot go to our churches today to inspire our, our people to continue spreading the lies to deceive people out there. That thing is stuck in my mind. Mm -hmm. And it brought my, to the light on my understanding that the Sabbath, and particularly this church, it is in the great battle because Satan hates us with a deadly hate. We all exist by God's providence, really. Mm -hmm. You know, this Sabbath issue is a much bigger issue than we know. It's not just over a certain day. It's how we look at God and how we relate to God as creator, sustainer. And when we truly are resting in God, that's when we're truly resting in the Sabbath. You see, when he, his argument in Hebrews 4 is that even when they entered the promised land, they had to enter God's rest. Even though they would worship on the seventh day, they had to enter God's rest. So it's like, well, how do you enter God's rest if you're in the promised land and you hadn't entered the rest? Well, because they haven't given up self. They hadn't allowed God to have rulership over their life. Until God is the planner and the problem solver of your life, you still haven't entered that rest. You're still trying to work out your own plans and everything else, and we're asking God to put his stamp on our plans. But no, God's looking for workers to do his plan. That's a whole different way of looking at it. We're to be witnesses of his plan, not our plan. And so we just need to find the, the, the simple methods, the, the methods that Christ had used, and we go forth as an army full of faith that all that God has shown us, all that he asks us to do, as long as we're obedient, he's going to make us successful spiritually. And there will be people that we'll be able to reach. So it really isn't any more difficult than that, is it? that we make things complicated when we try to take the work into our own hands, and we're still here. We're still here. So, anyway, it's great to be with you. Is there any other question before we have a closing prayer? Or? Okay. Well, God bless you, and enjoy the rest of this beautiful Sabbath day, huh? Let's uh, close with a word of prayer. We thank you, Father, for your loving kindness and the wonderful way you work through the life of Job and all those who've gone before us as, a, as a, a way of motivating us to cross that finish line, Father. We're the last runner in the race. Forgive us, Father, for the delay, but help us, Father, to begin each day acknowledging your supremacy over us and that all we want to do is follow your perfect ways and your perfect will and to trust you with our life and to trust that 
everything that happens to us is by your permission and for our eternal good. So, Father, help us to trust you more and love you more as each day from day to day. And we thank you for one another. And we pray that that love for one another will be just as you love us. And so, Father, help us to grow in this love and this patience, this hope. And we pray all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you.